As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Hi, I'm Wendy. And I'm Jess, and you're listening to the Food Heaven Podcast. Your online resource for inclusive and accessible wellness. Hey, hey, y'all. What is going on? Welcome back. We're currently on summer break. And so we are doing a re-air this week of one of our favorite episodes with Cal Newport. We're going to be talking about how to decrease your screen time. Very relevant during these times. So without further ado, we're going to jump in. We will be back next week with a new episode. Welcome to the podcast, Cal. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I want to talk a little bit about your book. And I know you have a new book coming out that will get to that as well. But I heard about digital minimalism on Jessica Mernan's podcast. Um, you came on and talked about it. And I was like, oh my God, I have to get this book. I read it in like a couple days, maybe even, yeah, like two days. And I bought it for literally like my whole family, like everyone I know basically. And I was like, you have to get this book. Can you tell people like, for people who haven't read the book, like what it's kind of about in a nutshell and then like what prompted you to write about it? Yeah, because it wasn't obvious that I would write a book like that. The, the book I had written before was called Deep Work and it was about the world of business. I mean, it was about, okay, we had these unintentional consequence of new technologies in the business space. So things like email had these unintentional consequences. We're more distracted. It's hard to get work done. So it was a very uh, tech and culture, but business focused book. And digital minimalism is a big departure. I mean, it's about your life outside of work. It's not about the world of business. What happened was it was the readers of Deep Work started giving me this feedback when I would see them at events or I would be at a book signing or they would email me. I kept getting this feedback from them. Yeah, maybe we buy what you were saying about technology in the workplace, but there's this other thing going on, which is technology in our life outside of work. And we're starting to get uneasy. We're starting to get uneasy, for example, about how much we're looking at our phone and what this is doing to us and what it's doing to our family life and what's it do, what it's doing to our health and our mental health and our spiritual health. And this kept getting brought up again and again from the readers of my business book. And so ultimately I said, okay, I think this is actually a topic that is really interesting. Uh, why are we getting uneasy about our technology? So what is it that's changing? Uh, and then two, what should we do about it? And I just thought those were two really interesting questions that I couldn't avoid. And so ultimately I said, I guess I should write a book about it. I would love to know like the information that you came across and digging deeper into this, because aside from being a professor, like you're also doing research about technology. And so what did you come across and like what led you to the conclusion that we probably should be interacting less with, I don't know if it's technology or just like with um, social media, screen time in general? Well, so the storyline I began to uncover you know, at the time was 
not really well known. Now, in recent months, because of the release of the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, yeah. a lot of these narrative threads have suddenly become, thankfully, uh, a lot better known. But a lot of what I was uncovering was the ways that we are manipulated into looking at these devices more than we want to. You know, that we look at them longer than we want to. We look at them in situations where there's other things we'd rather be doing and the amount of money that goes into that engineering. And then the second thing I uncovered, which I thought was important, is that when I worked with real people, so like I ran this big experiment, I had 1,600 people go through this digital declutter experiment. I mean, I spent time with a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds at a lot of different stages of life. So I really got a broad cross-section about what is people's issues with this technology. And what I kept uncovering is that it really was at the time less about what they were doing on their screens and much more about how long they were spending on them. And this was different than I think the coverage. So we, we began to get an anti, in particular, social media backlash in the culture at large in the last three or four years. But often that coverage focuses very, uh, very exclusively on what is happening on social media, what is the information people are seeing on social media, what are the companies doing with your data once they have it. But this wasn't really the storyline I was picking up from normal people three or four years ago. They were really mainly concerned with the fact that they're with their kids, but they're still looking at this thing. And so there was this interesting disconnect. And so people were getting upset about this is taking me away from things that I value. Whereas I feel like the media narrative on social media was social media is very important. We just have to make sure that what it's showing is valuable. And those, those storylines are actually kind of at odds with each other. Yeah, I feel like I even have like some nostalgia when I think about the days before technology and before phones, like even in college, we didn't really have phones at that. I mean, they were just kind of starting. And I remember like it was the Nokia. Um, I think it was Nokia. What I remember was waking up every day and like doing things that were more creative and not being like glued to this phone or technology in this like whole other world. And it's kind of when I compare myself to that time, I get really like sad about it. But then it's like, on the other hand, I mean, I'm not on TikTok, for example, but like people say like, TikTok is fun and like, it makes me happy. And like, I don't understand the problem. Like it's just cute videos all day. And so from your research, like what is the issue with being glued to your phone and, and being glued to technology? Like, is it bad for your health and your mental health? Like what do you come across? Well, there's a few different factors at play here. So one, and I think most importantly for most people, is just the opportunity cost. So if you are fragmenting your attention during something that would otherwise be very satisfying or meaningful or important to you, so you're with friends, you're with family, you're in, you know, seeing something with of aesthetic beauty, if you're also fragmenting your attention, you significantly reduce the value you were getting from it. So the, the first thing that's really afflicting people is that they're reducing the value they get out of things that were otherwise very meaningful and satisfying to them. And so the net amount of value in their life is much lower, which is why it is always dangerous to come at social media from the angle of, oh, there is some value to me using TikTok. There might be a little thing, I get some entertainment or, or this or that. The question is not, do you get a little bit of value out of it? The question is, is it sucking a lot of value out of things that you care about more? Now for young people, for adolescents, there's a pretty compelling emergent literature that's saying that there's actually strong mental health consequences. So to constantly be on these devices, to constantly be connected, to constantly be comparing yourself to these, these carefully curated portrayals of other people's lives, we're starting to see in the literature 
actual mental health consequences of the specific technology uh, that people are using. And then the final thing I, I picked up in my research is that we're losing solitude. So by solitude, I just mean time alone with your own mind and observing the world around you. Not necessarily isolation, but just solitude. Really, I'm not, uh, the, the official definition is I'm not processing input that was generated by another mind. So I'm not reading something. I'm not listening to something. I'm not looking at my phone. I'm just, hey, it's me. I'm looking around. We need that state. That's the default state for our brain. And we have to spend time in that state. It's like a housekeeping state. And what's possible now with constant technology use is that you can constantly be in a state of processing input from other minds. You can constantly take every moment of boredom and look at input from someone else's mind, reading something, listening to something. It keeps us in constantly in the state of, of uh, high energy information processing. And this seems to have some cognitive consequences as well. The most obvious one being actually anxiety. So we sort of have a a culture, especially young people who have this constant background hum of anxiety and they think it's just normal. You know, it's just anxious times. I'm just an anxious person, but it's actually being induced by this complete solitude deprivation of their life. They're keeping their brain in this peaked state that our brains are not meant to stay in all the time. If you aren't familiar with Sprout Living, I must tell you about their amazing protein powders that happen to be plant-based. As y'all know, if you listen to this podcast, I have a smoothie every morning because it is the quickest way for me to make sure that I have a balanced breakfast. And in that smoothie, I am adding this protein powder. And let me tell you, I actually had to take a break from protein powders because <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like all of them under delivered. Like they can be chalky. Sometimes I feel like they don't have enough protein, especially the plant-based ones. But this one is amazing in terms of the taste and also the nutrient profile. Sprout Living protein powders are functional, delicious, and third-party tested, which is really important. They also include nutrient-dense whole foods, and their ingredients are sourced directly from real farms and growers. So my personal favorite is the superfood protein powder in the vanilla flavor, but they also have a collagen protein powder and a pumpkin seed protein powder that also contains 20 grams of protein per serving and only one ingredient. If you're a matcha lover, their Epic Protein Mindful Matcha Blend contains ingredients that research suggests can help boost mental clarity, focus, and memory, which is pretty amazing if you need help focusing like I do. And you don't only have to reserve the Sprout Living protein powders for your smoothies. They also go really well with baked goods. They also have a bunch of different flavors, which makes it easy to find something you'll love and easy to beat blender boredom. There's the original unflavored blend that mixes well with any kind of smoothie or baked good. The chocolate maca that legitimately tastes like chocolate milk and even a complete coffee blend that puts Starbucks to shame. Check them out and use the code FOODHEAVEN for 20% off your order. Again, that's code FOODHEAVEN for 20% off your order. Now let's get into the episode. 
I'm thinking about what you're saying with values and just like with young people who were kind of birthed into like the social media era, which I mean, I think for Justin, I don't know how old you are, Cal, but when we were growing up, I think social media started when we were entering college, perhaps. And so I'm thinking for kids who I mean, this is all they know, like social media since birth and even some kids who are as young as like two and they already have like an Instagram account set up by their parents. I'm just wondering how it affects what they see as valuable because I've interacted with some kids where they're just like, okay, you mentioned like, well, you know, you you have to think about what you care about more and they care more about being on social media than like hanging out with family or like, I don't know, spending time in solitude. It's just like all that they know because this has been their reality since birth, really. And just like the importance that has been placed on social media. So I'm wondering, like, and thinking about what's excessive and what's not excessive, especially for someone who's like consumed with social media in that way. How do you determine that? Well, if you're young, and, and I have a bit of an extreme view on this, but if you're young, so if you're, if you're 16 or younger, and, and honestly, this probably holds for 18 or, or under, I don't think you should have a social media account. Uh, the amount of manipulative, I should say, attention engineering that goes into these products, the amount of engineering brilliance that was invested in how do we press the right buttons in your brain to capture your attention and get the right emotions and make it almost impossible to, to break your attention away from this. If you combine that with a still developing brain, it's a really dangerous recipe. I mean, we discovered this with nicotine. We discovered this with alcohol. We realized, okay, smoking, if you're 14, can really get its hooks into your brain in a way that, that is going to make it even harder to quit. And if you're older, same thing with you know alcohol and developing brain. And so I, I'm of the point of view that Young people should not be using these tools. They're way too, too psychologically powerful, way too psychologically potent to combine with still developing brains. But more generally, the approach that I preach in this book, this approach of digital minimalism, is value-driven. And this was basically my answer to the question of what should we do about our uneasiness with technology? And the answer was get intentional. And the, the core of the minimalism philosophy is you start by figuring out what you care about. Like, these are the things that are important to me. These are the things I want to spend my time doing. These are my values. Once you have provisional answers to those questions, then you work backwards and say, what's the best way to use technology to support these things? So you are deploying technology to support things you really care about, as opposed to casually using technology and having it accidentally invade in all these activities that you really care about. And so it's, it's kind of the equivalent of if you think about like a cluttered closet, you have the Mary Kondo advice of you don't just sort of put in some organizers or take a few things out. It's better to empty the whole thing and say, what do I really want to keep in here? That's what I think people should do with technology. We talk too much about hacks and tips and, well, don't bring your phone into the room or turn off your notifications or, or have a, a rule about when you use it. And I think you have to empty the proverbial closet and say, let's start from scratch. What do I care about? What are these specific ways I deploy tech to help things that are big wins for me? And great, ignore everything else and do so happily. Yeah, I really liked that about your book because you don't do like a cookie cutter approach to it. You're basically like just rip the bandaid off when it comes to like doing this digital minimalism. And you have to start with little to no technology, basically, and then detox in a way, and then kind of build back in whatever is like actually valuable 
and helpful to you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like why it has, why you recommend that it has to be like kind of more drastic versus people who want to, you know, like, yeah, do a little bit and, you know, take the phone out the room. Right. So, you know, what I suggest is a 30 day period and I, I call it the digital declutter and you spend 30 days essentially away from all of these optional personal technologies like social media and online news and, and you know, streaming video and video games. If, if you're a big video game player, technologies that are optional in your personal life, not business technologies. The reason why I think you need these 30 days before on the other end, you carefully rebuild your life, carefully rebuild your digital life is twofold. One, you do have to wean off of that edge of addiction. It's very difficult to make sane decisions about what you want to use and not want to use when you still still feel this powerful compulsion. If I have to look at this, I have to look at this. You have to take the edge off. And that takes about five to 10 days is what I found in my research. But the rest of that time is actually giving yourself space to rediscover through reflection and experimentation what you actually care about. Like, what do you actually like doing? What actually gives you value? What do you actually want to do with your time? These are not obvious questions, especially if like a lot of people you have been basically avoiding yourself, avoiding hard questions, avoiding realities of your life, numbing yourself by just looking at these screens and allowing these, these algorithmically optimized morsels of content just to hit these buttons in your brain. It's sort of like a digital, a digital, you know, opium dim almost. Like I can just tune out and this will just make my brain feel things. I don't want to deal with what's going on in my life. I don't want to deal with what I'm happy about, what I'm sad about, what I know I could be doing better. This 30 days forces you to confront all of that. And it's really scary, but then what you get on the other end is clarity. Like, I want to do this. I want to spend time with other people. This part of my life is important. I want to be giving back to my community more, and here's a way I can do this. I want to develop my brain. My brain's very important, so like reading is very crucial to me. I want to spend more time quiet outside in nature, whatever it is, but you figure out what really matters. And then once you know those questions, it's much easier to rebuild your digital life because you're rebuilding it to support something you care about, which is much more sustainable than what most people do, which is to say, here's what I dislike about technology, so I'm going to try to use it less. It's very hard to change behaviors from the perspective of I'm just trying to reduce something that is negative, especially if that negative thing feels good in the moment. It's much more sustainable if you're focused on supporting something you know is very positive. And that's the approach that my 30-day declutter actually tries to put into place. In your research, is there like a maximum amount of time recommended? Like don't spend more than one hour on screen time or have you come across anything like that? Or is it just variable depending on the situation and the person? So this is why in, in the intentional approach, you actually, you shift away from general purpose rules or hacks or tips. And instead what you do is say, all right, here are the things I care about. For each, I want to figure out what's the best way to use technology to support this thing. So now you're introducing technologies to support particular things you value. And once you know why you're using a technology, now you can put really intelligent limits and rules around how you use it, right? If you don't know what you're trying to optimize for, it's very hard to optimize your technology use. So a big example that came up often in my research where I ran these 1,600 people through this, uh, through this experiment is that a lot of people came back and said Facebook groups was important. They were realizing, okay, you know, I'm a student on campus and here's a group that I'm a part of and it's important to me. They use Facebook groups to organize or in my town, this is like a, a, a group that I'm a part of and they use Facebook groups to organize. And they said, okay, so I need to use Facebook because these groups are important to me. I value them and Facebook groups is how they organize. 
But once they knew why they were using Facebook, now they can optimize. It's like, oh, the specific reason I'm using Facebook is for groups. So then they say, well, wait a second. Why is it on my phone? There's no reason for it to be on my phone. Uh, I can just access it on my desktop because I only have to access it a couple times a week to see what's going on with these groups. And well, if what I'm really doing is the Facebook groups, then why do I need to see the news feed? Why do I need to see like my cousin's roommate talking about QAnon if the real reason I use Facebook is to, to, to go to Facebook groups? So then they put in a plug-in like Newsfeed Eradicator and they get rid of that. And they say, okay, now this is really, you know, not a source of entertainment. So why don't I just have a schedule? Uh, Wednesday morning, Saturday night, I log in on my desktop computer. I go to the groups, spend a half hour checking on what's going on, right? So once you know why you're using a technology, you can put a lot of really smart rules into it. But if you don't know the why, these rules are just sort of random and I think are a lot less effective. One thing that has changed for me during the pandemic and that I have held on to and actually come to love is buying all of my groceries online via Thrive Market. I feel like before Thrive Market, it was really hard to find all of your grocery and household items at an affordable price in one place. But with Thrive Market, I get everything I need and so much more. With Thrive Market, you can shop for everything from healthy pantry essentials and sustainable meat and seafood to non-toxic cleaning and beauty products all delivered right to your door. And if you find a price lower elsewhere, get this, Thrive is going to match it, which is really great and unheard of. <laughs> Thrive Market carefully vets each and every item so you can trust that if they sell it, it's probably the highest quality available. Finding everything you need is easy on Thrive Market because you can filter by 90 plus values and lifestyles to find what works for you. With over 5,000 food, home, and beauty products, finding what you need is easy with Thrive Market. So if you're looking for plant-based, for example, zero waste or BIPOC-owned brands, which I'm always searching for, Thrive has you covered. I personally love that they have their own label. So you can buy the Thrive brand of things like coconut oil. I love the almond butter. I mean, you name it and they sell it. When you join Thrive Market, you're joining a community of over 1 million members and also sponsoring a family in need. And with their fast, free, and carbon-neutral shipping, you're also helping to better the planet. Join Thrive Market today and get $80 in free groceries. That's Thrive Market, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com slash heaven to get $80 in free groceries. That's thrivemarket.com slash heaven. All right, let's get back to the episode. One of the issues I have is like technology and, and a relationship. And I feel like that's a, it's so kind of new-ish. And I don't know, there's just not that much information out there in terms of how it can impact a romantic relationship. So for example, I did the, the detox, but then I've kind of relapsed a little bit. But so, but when I'm on my digital detox, like kick, and then I see my husband on my phone, on his phone, I get like very irritated. But it's like, I don't know that I have the right to get irritated because I'm on the digital detox kick and he's not. Like, how do you navigate that? And then also for him, he's like, well, I, I get on my phone at the end of the day to unwind. Like, what do I say to that? Because I just feel like that's BS. Yeah. Well, I mean, it is, but we, we have a lot of experience with the right way to navigate personal improvement in relationships because it's not new. We see it with all sorts of types of personal improvement. So this is very common, for example, uh, in the health and fitness world, that if you get very serious about, uh, in particular, diet, 
that's a big one because your partner is in the same house and they're eating different things and you see them, or if you get really into exercising and your partner is not into exercising. So in, in health and fitness, we get this problem a lot. And the answer there seems to be, you can't cajole someone into making a change. What you can do is demonstrate how many benefits it's giving for you. And then if they are interested and start asking about it, you're able to really clearly explain this is what I'm doing and why. Uh, this also comes up in finances a lot with personal finances where, you know, people talk a lot about when they get their personal finances in control, they start to worry like, you know, my parents are really not very careful with their money and they could be doing so much better. But you can't just tell your parents you're managing your money wrong. They kind of have to come, come around and ask you. So that's what seems to work. And that's the best you can do when it comes to overhauling your digital health and fitness is model, you know, this is what I do and live a better life and live this more focused life, live this deeper life radiate the benefits, but don't twist any arms, right? And then if at some point your husband comes, he's like, all right, so what is this thing you're doing? It seems kind of good. You can say, and even then you got to be careful, right? Because if you tell, you tell someone, here's what you should do, they're not going to do it. So you have to say, maybe push my book towards them or something like that. <laughs> you know, this, used, this used to happen with, when I was in college, I wrote these, these student advice books. And then uh, parents many years later would tell me, uh, I had to contrive a way for my kids to discover the book because if I gave it to them, now for sure they're not going to read it. But if they come across it on their own, then they might actually read it. And so, I mean, a lot of people have the same problem you're talking about. And, you know, you get frustrated. It's like, ah, you just know, like, don't look at your phone. That's not the right way to unwind. You're just numbing yourself. This is not going to, this is not going to do it. It's not deep. There's better things you can do with your time. You can't force the issue. You have to just demonstrate this is the benefits you get. And then also just put my podcast on in the background a lot. <laughs> I know. I'm going to start listening to it because I need some like reinforcement because I remember when I read your book, I was like, you know, I kind of went all the way with it. And then the same when I watched The Social Dilemma, I was like, I deleted my personal IG. I was like, I'm only going to go on on weekends, which I have been doing. But then I feel like it like things started creeping up in other ways with screen time. And it's just like been really hard to make these changes long lasting. Yeah. So like, I don't know if I'm spending less time on social media, maybe like unconsciously, I'm like, oh, well, let me spend more time on Netflix or like whatever. Just like, you know, like it's just like another way of engaging with screen time. But in my mind, it's like a little better. And so I'm just wondering, like, how can people make these changes more sustainable? Because I think initially, especially when you come like, after watching The Social Dilemma, I was like, oh my God, this is like terrible. I don't want anything to do with this. But then it's like literally the way our world is set up now, especially during quarantine, because like people are spending so much more time at home and it's like there's but so many hobbies that I can have. Like I've done all the DIY projects at home. I've been on FaceTime with friends for hours and hours. I've done all the meditating. It's like, what else is there to do? Let me go on Hulu and watch Real Housewives. You know what I mean? So... How can how can people kind of navigate that? Well, this is this is a good point because you know something I, I I try to emphasize to people is that if you let's say you do the the thirty day experience where you first identify what I care about and and then here's the technology I use and how I use it, it's not a one time thing. It should be seen as like the starting point for many tune ups along the way, especially when there's a change in life situation. So you know anyone who bought my book last year and went through this exercise 
pre-pandemic, like during the pandemic, they should definitely be revisiting this, right? Because that's a major change to, to the environment. So you should actually probably have written down somewhere. I think this is useful. These are the technologies I use and how I use them. And, you know, so you have some notion of like, I, I, you know, I use Netflix because I, I value this and here's how I use Netflix to support this thing. So it might not just be Netflix is something I use. It's like, well, there's a certain type of entertainment I like. And, and, and so I don't, I watch it about this much is kind of my rule. And I, I try to do, you know, whatever, watch more quality things on there, like discover new movies, as opposed to doing the, the numbing, you know, shows I've seen 20 times in a row or whatever it is. And then you can just revisit that document. And uh, when you revisit the document, you don't have to spend 30 days like getting back in touch with things. It's much more like, let me take a Saturday. Uh, let me take a Saturday and not really be around my phone and, and get back, look at this document again and think it through. And I want to change some things. Like, well, I didn't have Zoom on here before the pandemic because I'd never used it before. Now I probably need to think through, like, what do I use Zoom for? Well, I connect with my family and let me put some rules on this. Or now I, I found myself, you know, I wasn't a big Twitter user, but maybe like during the pandemic, I became a, a doom scroller. Like I find that like, I, I scroll, scroll, scroll and see everyone trying to one-up each other with, with trying to be more worrisome about the news or whatever. And so I didn't even think about that behavior before, but now I really need to update the section I have on Twitter. Maybe I should take Twitter out of my life altogether right now and replace it with, you know, this, like I'm going to get a, ma whatever it is, right? So, so that's what I would suggest is you actually have a master document somewhere. Here are the technology I use, how I use them, why I use them. And then you can revisit that much more often and much more quickly. But then the only habit you really have to convince yourself of is like, I try to follow this document. And if I'm not following this document, I can change the document. But what I don't do is ignore it. And so I think that that notion of continual tweaking and improvement is is definitely one that's more relevant now than it's really ever been before. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, especially, I mean, it's very similar to the work that we do, you know, with clients where one thing is that I'll have them do is this idea called a body kindness blueprint, which is from another dietitian, Rebecca Scritchfield, where they will come up with like, what does um, a compassionate and healthy relationship with like food in your body look like? And it's something that they physically like write down and all different aspects like social, mental, all the different things. And they can always kind of revisit it. So I feel like this is pretty similar in that sense where it's like, yeah, just putting pen to paper and like really thinking it through and knowing that this is kind of like your technology blueprint. I think that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I love from your book are the concepts is the idea of office hours. Because as I was reading through your book and you're talking about like making more connections with folks in real time, like on the actual phone versus just like liking on their Instagram, you were talking about how important that is. But I found myself thinking like, oh my God, like nobody wants to get a random call these days because this is just not like the culture we live in. But you had the perfect solution of office hours. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Yeah. And the, the idea is uh, this is a set time on set days where you're advertising, you know, the people you know. I'm available. I'm available. I have my phone here or my Zoom open or, or, or what have you. Or what I've seen also recently, which I think is great, is I'm on my patio you know, for people who actually live nearby, I'll, I'll be out on my patio, like between this hour, you can stop by or call or zoom during this period without having to tell me ahead of time. And it's and I'm going to be happy to hear from you and happy to see you. And so now if someone wants to talk to you like, oh, yeah, Mondays, Monday afternoons, you know, like, uh, you're always available. Great. So I'll just uh, pick up and, and give you a call. Or if you run into someone like, oh, we should catch up, you can say, yeah, here are my office hours, just whenever. Anytime these come up, anytime, just come on over, call me or whatever, you know, medium you're using. 
And it fosters lots of interaction and it, it gets rid of that friction or overhead that gets in the way of a lot of this interaction, which is, well, I don't know when you're available and I don't want to have to, I don't want to just call you. It might not be a good time and maybe I'll try to text you and then we have this back and forth. If you get rid of the friction, you get a lot more interaction. And I think during the pandemic in particular, people need, they don't realize the degree to which you're not getting as much analog communication as you normally do. And by analog, I mean non-text-based. So where you can hear a voice or, or see someone's very important. And we're in a deficit in a way we don't really realize because there's all these incidental interactions at work or in, you know, whatever that we're not getting. So office hours now, I think, are crucial where you basically are really trying to make it easy for people to analog interact with you. And you, you are systematically making that easy and trying to fill those time slots. I think it, it, it gives you something you don't even realize you're missing. Yeah, I love that. I started doing that um, this year where I don't check my phone until 11 a.m. And yeah, people just kind of adjust to that. Like initially, my friends and family were a little freaked out. They're like, are you alive? Like, what's going on? And now they just kind of know. They're like, yeah, she doesn't don't even bother calling her until 11. I do have to work on like, because before I used to have those limits before bed, like I would set it for like 8 p.m. or whatever. But now with COVID, everything is kind of yeah. So I got to work on that. But it is super helpful. And I'm wondering, like, with your research, have you seen, I'm sure you have seen, like, the positive effects of decreasing screen time. But can you tell us, like, what the research shows? And also, I know you mentioned anxiety, like, for people who are spending increased amount of time on the screen. So I'm wondering, like, if someone's like, okay, this might be an issue. Aside from anxiety, like, what are some other negative side effects, I guess, of spending too much time on that? Well, so first of all, you, you can also get a reduced general capacity for concentration. So if mm. you, the, the highly fragmented and distractible nature of online content, which, which is obviously optimized to keep you engaged, uh, not for long form consumption, when you turn your attention to other things, that you value and require long-term concentration, both in your work or life outside of your work, you have a really hard time with it. I mean, just think about how hard it is now for a lot of people just to watch a full episode of a complex episodic TV show without also like, I kind of have to check this and I kind of have to look at this <laughs> right, and how uncomfortable yeah. we get. <laughs> so true. We lose a lot. There's, there's a lot of value we get out of getting lost in something that's sort of, uh, you know, I call it uh, like a long form cogitation, but where you're really lost in a book or in a show or in a conversation or just in a setting when you're outside and it's just scenic. And when you lose that, that ability, that, that, there's a real cost to that. Um, it also can change. It can also change the way you understand the world. Uh, there's a science writer named Winifred Gallagher who wrote this really great book about a decade ago called Wrapped, R-A-P-T. You know, part of the point she's making in this is that the way you understand the world, so the way your brain like literally thinks about what the world is and how it works is really Im impacted by what you pay attention to. So depending on what you pay attention to, how you understand the world, how you feel about the world, and therefore how you feel physiologically can really be affected. Now, there's a really smart technocritic, late technocritic named Neil Postman, who wrote this really good book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it was about television, but it was more broadly about this notion that he had adapted from his mentor, Marshall McLuhan, called, where McLuhan had said the medium, uh, the medium is the message, but, but Postman really pushed this farther. And what he really was arguing is that sort of the mediums with which we interact with the world really changes the way we actually think, the way we process information, the way we think about the world. And so like right now, if you are on, let's say, Twitter all the time, 
this can actually affect the way that you even go about understanding the world. Like Twitter makes the world, changes the way your brain understands the world into a very simplistic paradigm. It simplifies down the world to, to villains and heroes, and the heroes are terrible and the villains are great. And in 250 characters, you just can kind of dunk on the other team. Uh, it gets rid of all of the, the nuanced rules of rhetoric that we've used to try to understand the world and make progress on the world. And it makes it to like a really kind of mean, angry, very simple place where you're like, it's on all sides, you're in fighting quixotic battles against terrible people. And, and, and anyways, if you spend a lot of time on Twitter, as Postman would teach you, suddenly you see the world as this terrible place, then you feel really bad. And you, you don't miss all the good, you miss all the goodness around you and the nuance around you and the person down the street, you, you know, and what they're doing, and this is nice, and what's going on here. And there's all this interesting nuance and, and, and beauty in the world. And depending on the mediums you're interacting with, it can all get stripped away. And so that, that, that's, that's kind of an abstract answer, but I think it's also an important piece is that if you spend all your time using these tools, it literally changes the way you understand the world. And it makes the world into, you know, like you're in a Mad Max movie and there's garbage cans on fire and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you know, and, and like you're hoping that whatever, right? And, and, and people are in uh, uh, souped up tractor trailers doing battles. I'm trying to remember the Mad Max movies. I don't know them that well, but, <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like post-apocalyptic, right? Um, and we, we underestimate the degree to which the medium in which you're interacting with the world completely changes the way you understand the world. And I think there's a lot of people right now that are just there, the world for all the issues in the world, there's also a lot that's great about the world and life in general. And they don't, you can't get to the other part. Humanity diminishes and it impoverishes the actual quality of your life. And so we underestimate the degree to which how we interact with the world can change what that world is in our brain. And if we change the world into this sort of a, like an impoverished dark thing, you're going to, live a life that feels impoverished and dark. And so that's another subtle issue with devoting way too much time to these sort of highly arbitrary ways of interacting. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't even think it's subtle. I think especially like with what's going yeah. on today and all the political stuff. And I was just listening to the New York Times, the daily podcast about how people on the left and the right, like everyone is buying guns and they're, they're like all painting these like narratives you know, a lot of it is probably from, like you said, like technology and how they're interacting like YouTube and, and stuff like that. So no, I think it's like, that makes perfect sense. I'm curious, are you on any of these platforms? Like, are you on Instagram, Twitter? No. So I, I'm, I've never had a social media account and I think I'm the last one. So yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think now in their user statistics, they don't talk about how many users they have. They talk about how many users they don't have. And that list is down to just me. So <laughs> I believe it. Yeah. I, I will say, however, it's fine. I mean, it, it, <laughs> yeah. I, I know about what's going on in the world, right? I uh, am still connected with people I care about. I still have no shortage of things that are entertaining. This is my report from the world without social media. I, I don't, have a lot to do on my phone. So like, I don't really know what to do on my phone. If you give it to me, I don't know what, I'm not a good web surfer because I don't have, there's no uh, data center out there that knows a lot of things about me that's serving things up that I'm going to want to see. So I'm not good at web surfing. I, I don't have much interesting on my phone, but otherwise I feel like my life, my life is good. I mean, I can still sell books. Uh, I can still keep up with the news. I read a newspaper. I listen to the radio. I have a lot of friends. We stay in touch. I use, you know, text messaging a lot with like, friends who are more geographically dispersed. I, I really prioritize seeing people in person. I think that's important. It seems to work. I have a Zoom call with my family every week. So yeah, I, I don't see pictures on, and we, we text pictures to each other. So 
don't know. That's my report from the world without social media. <laughs> wow. I'm probably a lot less anxious than a lot of people. Yeah. I, I have not had the urge to buy a gun either. Um, so <laughs> maybe that's a good sign. We'll, we'll use that as a data point. Right. I'm wondering with email, like, are you, do you have times that you log into your email? Also, like, are you watching shows? Right. Are you doing VHS? Like, what's happening? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I'm not watching a lot of shows, but that's just because I have, too, I have, you know, too many kids, basically. So <laughs> just, I don't, I don't, at the moment, I don't have any free time for anything. But uh, yeah, so, so yeah, I don't, I don't have a lot of time, free time, but that that's not a, that's not a, a careful, laudable technology choice. That's more just a side effect of having three young kids. Email, man, that's a whole other question. So <laughs> do you have a book? Because Jessica Mernan said you have a book coming up about email. Yeah, so I, I do. I mean, and which is like more what I normally, which, which again, just underscores that digital minimalism was a little bit outside of my normal uh, topic. It was just such an important topic and I cared so much about it. But yeah, my, my next book, which comes out in March, uh, is titled A World Without Email. Mm. And, and that's back in the business space. That's back in the business space. But that and, and you know, my, my, my publicist is going to get me mad, you know, get mad at me for talking about this early. But okay, I will a little bit, we won't tell her. Um, <laughs> but the, 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 the basic idea of that book is that when low friction digital communication tools like email arrived in the office, we brought them in to do very simple things, like to take communication we were already doing to make it easier. Like, you know, the fax machine is terrible. And like email is a much easier way of doing that. And memos that were delivered through manila file folders uh, with little red thread ties like we used to do in our office mail. Uh, email is much better. Also, voicemail is a pain. You got to like type in whatever. So email like took things we were doing and, and made it easier. And that's what the engineers thought. But what, what happened is it also radically transformed how we worked way beyond that. And it, it, it ushered in an approach to work in which we are uh, constantly communicating. It's constant, unstructured, ad hoc communication. That's how all work unfolds. Let's just keep back and forth, back and forth uh, through Slack, through email, through SMS. I'm actually really technology agnostic. It's the workflow I care about here. The workflow in which it's constant, ad hoc, unstructured conversation. And my argument in the book is that no one actually ever said that was a good idea. It just naturally emerged once the tool was available. In fact, I document that, that you can just see how it just it emerged, it's like a feedback loop gone awry. No one ever said, this is how we're going to work now. Uh, and then two, I argue, it's a terrible way to get a lot of people and say, we want you to use your brains to create value. That it's actually a really bad way to work. So we didn't plan to work this way and it's really not a good way to work. I mean, it has some advantages because it's flexible and cheap, but it turns out to be a really bad way to actually use your brain to produce value. And it also happens to make people miserable. And so then the whole second half of my book is how could you engineer a workplace of the future in which you were not just using constant ad hoc unstructured conversation as the backbone for all of your coordination efforts. So then are you, so tell me, like, are you on email <laughs> or <laughs> what is your routine with email? Right. So, so the, the point there is when, it, when we're talking about a world without email, what we're really talking about is a world without that workflow. So a, a world in which you don't use email as the primary way to organize all work. You would still use email as like a way, hey, I want to send a message or a file to someone. Like it's a great communication protocol, but getting away from this workflow in which constant ad hoc unstructured messaging is how all things unfold. And so, yeah, I have email. I have like six email addresses if I, because I have a bunch of, <laughs> okay. bunch of different roles at Georgetown <laughs> and as a writer and as a podcaster, I have a lot of different email addresses. Um, but to the degree possible, I try to move the things I do into much more well-defined processes. And, and, and that's in general what I think actually works better is if you're like, this is something that I do. 
this is a it's sort of a professional process I do a bunch of times, it's good to step back and say, well, what's the right way to do this? What's the right way to bring in information? What's the right way to execute it? What's the right way to return the information? But if you answer that question for all implicit processes in your work life, if you answer the question with just, we'll just work it out over email, or we'll just work it out over Slack, it doesn't scale. And what you end up with is then you're dealing with two, three, 400 messages a day coming in all throughout the day. And you have to keep up with all these ongoing ad hoc conversations, each one dealing with a different thing going on in your work life. And it makes it basically impossible to use your brain to produce things that are valuable at any much of a high level. And it also makes us miserable. So uh, email is a great tool. Using it as the primary way, however, in which you organize and coordinate around work, I think causes problems. Oh my God, I cannot wait for that book to come out. Is there, can we, so by the time this airs, it'll be January. Can we pre-order the book? Like, is there a title? Yeah, no, yeah. So you can, you can pre-order it. It's called The World Without Email. Okay. I'm sure by January, uh, there will be, I mean, we'll, we'll, there'll be pre-order inducements. So yeah, probably by the time this comes out, there will be some, uh, some things announced. I, I, I tend to do special things for people who pre-order my books, like special, uh, special online events and stuff like that. So, so I'm sure by then there will be, there will be a, a, a lot of inducements to take a look at the book. Oh my God. I'm so excited about that book. I will be on that pre-order list. And just like in wrapping up, where can people find out more about you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, well, as mentioned, uh, well, you're not going to find me on social media, though there, right. will, yeah. <laughs> there are fake Cal Newports on social media, though which is okay. interesting. There's multiple Cal Uh-oh. Newport Twitter accounts, but, but none of them are me. Um, so I have a website, calnewport.com, uh, where I have the, you can sign up for a mailing list. I, I write a weekly article. I've been doing it since 2007. And so that, that's a fun mailing list. And then I have a podcast, Deep Questions, where I answer questions each week that readers send in uh, about work, about technology, and about living a deeper life. And so I, I have a main episode each week where I answer a bunch of questions, and then I have a mini episode each week, and it's all voice questions that's specifically about work and productivity, in particular, in a time where work is disrupted. So it's the mini episode each week is very nuts and bolts, like time management, email management, like uh, how do I how do I deal with a fractured schedule? So if you like geeking out on those type of techno productivity work issues, that podcast has a lot. Mm, I love that. I subscribed already and I will be signing up for that newsletter. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, man, because you, you know how I told you things can go real wrong real quick. Where now I'm like subscribed to 100 different like newsletters. So I have to just like be mindful of how <laughs> even how I interact with this kind of information, because I can also use that as an excuse to escape. But anyways, <laughs> um, I'm subscribed. I'll be tuning in. And thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, well, thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of the Food Heaven podcast. If you haven't already, make sure to connect with us online. We're most active on the gram at Food Heaven, but we're also on Facebook and Twitter at Food Heaven Show. If you like this podcast, make sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share with a friend. Yep, our podcast is released every Wednesday and each week we take a deep dive into topics like health at every size, food and culture, intuitive eating, mental health, and body acceptance. If you're looking for a sustainable and inclusive path to wellness, come hang out with us to learn how to take care of yourself from the inside out. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.